This week's Coming of Age episode is sponsored by OLTCA's sector champion, Point Click Care. It's through Point Click Care's ongoing partnership and generous support that we are able to host our thought-provoking podcast. Stay tuned to the end of today's episode to learn more about Point Click Care. This is our chance to seize hold of people's openness to change, to doing things differently, and recognizing that health human resources is one of the most pressing national challenges that we're facing. And we're not going to get back on our feet as a society unless we address the huge care needs that are affecting all Canadians. This is Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population, a podcast about how we can better support our seniors. I'm your host, Donna Duncan. I am also the CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, which represents about 70% of long-term care homes in Ontario, Canada. Welcome everyone to season two of Coming of Age. We had very positive responses to our season one, and I'd like to thank everyone who shared your feedback. I'm glad you found our discussions informative and helpful. For our first season of season two, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Jane Philpott, the Dean of Health Sciences at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Dr. Philpott is a family physician and a former Canadian cabinet minister who has devoted her life to public health and community health in so many different ways. Dr. Philpott, in her new role, is using her extensive knowledge and experience to shape the next generation of healthcare professionals. Queen's University Health Sciences recently developed and launched a new, bold, innovative strategic plan called Radical Collaboration. This new plan is shaking up the traditional model of healthcare education, taking down the walls between professions and training people to think in a team-based mindset. This is a particularly important way to provide care for seniors who may need a larger number of professionals and services as they age. Dr. Philpott shared stories of where this team-based care is already making a difference, and she shared her ideas of how to expand this approach to care across the health system. Dr. Philpott, you just bring such a unique experience, including the response during the pandemic to your local community in need, helping those who couldn't help themselves and have really brought empathy, compassion, but also a bias towards action. I'm so delighted to be able to interview you uh, at this time that you have a new strategic plan at Queen's University. I'm wondering if you could share with us your thinking and, and the work that you did with your team to come up with this framework and what's the anchor behind radical collaboration and your thinking about how we're going to get out ahead of this? Well, thanks, Donna. I'm really happy to have this conversation. And I think like you that we are at a really critical time where there is a window of opportunity in spite of all of the tragedy This is our chance to seize hold of people's openness to change, to doing things differently, and recognizing that health human resources is one of the most pressing national challenges that we're facing. And we're not going to get back on our feet as a society unless we 
address the huge care needs that are affecting all Canadians, but in your world, affecting the lives of older people in particular. So uh, we took advantage, I guess you might say, of that openness and the fact that people were looking for solutions to undertake a strategic planning process at the Faculty of Health Sciences. We met with literally over a thousand people across our community. That was our faculty members, our staff, our students, alumni, people living in the Kingston community, but well beyond that and said, you know, what can we do together? And over and over again, we heard that when it comes to human resources for health, we need to work together better. And this term of radical collaboration emerged. We realized that doctors and nurses and personal support workers and rehabilitation therapists and public health professionals cannot solve anything in their own silos. We need to work together, link arms, take the walls down, train differently so that when we get out on the front lines, we're actually serving in very different ways and thinking in a team-based mindset. Here at Queen's, The nurses, the doctors, the OTs, PTs, uh, the public health professionals, the health sciences researchers were all a part of one faculty and we're small enough that we can work together and we can take down those walls and we can talk to young people when they arrive on campus and say, where do you fit into the future of healthcare? Also to understand the importance of each other's roles, right? We saw in the, in the pandemic where critical care specialists, critical care nurses couldn't do all of the frontline work. So they had to bring in specialist doctors from other fields and learn what their jobs are. You know, we saw, of course, in the sector that you're so involved in, a recognition of, oh my gosh, we can't run these facilities unless our personal support workers and our dietary staff and our the people that do the laundry are all part of the health team. And we hadn't always thought that that was how big our team was, but it's bigger than we've ever thought. I think certainly our lessons learned were that no one understood what long-term care is. Nobody understood Mm. who is living in long-term care. Long-term care was seen as this homogenous entity and uh, where everybody who couldn't get care in hospital or home or community any longer, just went there without an acknowledgement of the complexity of the care needs. One of the principles that you've detailed in your plan that I'm really curious about, and and you've been very purposeful in, in the words you've chosen, authentic focus on what communities need. And I know you're doing some really innovative work within your communities of students, but also other communities. Could you maybe unpack that for us a bit and, and speak to where seniors may fit in those communities? But, but how do you imagine the use of the word communities? Well, thank you, for, thank you for noticing the intentionality of our words. It was like every word has to count and mean something. So you're right, a real focus on what communities need and making sure that we have impact through our research, teaching and care. One of the wonderful things that happened came about, again, because of a problem that the pandemic presented for her, our rehabilitation therapy students, uh, was that a lot of their placements were canceled in the early days. We had you know, small clinics that said we just were overwhelmed by 
addressing the, the PPE needs. We just can't manage taking on your students. And so they just canceled them when we were in a bit of a bind because you can't train in the health professions without hands-on experience. And so our physiotherapists started to be creative and looked into who in our community needed access to physiotherapy services but didn't already have it. We ended up collaborating between our local community health center and the Boys and Girls Club, which had a facility that was available for use, and our School of Physiotherapy, our School of Rehabilitation Therapy, the physio team. And we sent in small teams of students with a preceptor, a teacher, who went in and basically said, we're going to provide free physiotherapy care to anybody who doesn't have coverage for physiotherapy. It allowed people to get care that didn't have it before. Our students learned about rehabilitation, people living with disabilities in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise. And the community health center was able to offer that kind of care. So it was really a win all around because we know that access to rehabilitation services, as I'm sure you realize, is not a given in many parts of our communities. And as people age, access to physio and, and occupational therapy is so essential to people being able to function at their top capacity. So that was a relatively simple little project that has turned into this wonderful initiative that we are not going to stop doing. In fact, we're now going to expand it from physio into OT, uh, potentially bringing in other services uh, to this clinic. So another example, which we're really excited about is our partnership in with the Lake Ridge Health community in Durham region in Ontario in response to the need that communities have around family doctors. Uh, as you know, and I know that it impacts the long-term care sector, there's a, a serious shortage of primary care doctors. We decided to do things differently and actually use some of our new medical school seats to launch this new partnership to train family doctors in a different way where they will come into medical school with a commitment to be a family doctor, and they will just move seamlessly from medical school into their residency in family medicine. They'll be able to shorten the period of time by doing so, but even better, we're going to work with communities to do that. So we're going to have communities help us to identify the kinds of young people they want in this training program. They will essentially be like apprentices starting right from the beginning of their training, working in communities. It's a, another example of the kind of creativity that has been spurred by this question of how can we be more efficient and effective and deliver the kind of training for healthcare providers in the way that communities are seen and heard and implicated in the whole program. Those are really exciting and, and certainly models that we've asked questions about. I, I know my my grandmother was a nursing sister who trained in a hospital in the United Kingdom uh, and then went back and upgraded her training in real time during the Second World War. And, and my aunts were also nurses and trained in a hospital setting and in real time in local communities and, and remained in those communities. I'm wondering how this is being received by the students uh, as we're looking and, and what we've been speaking to government about and governments around the world, not just in Ontario and Canada, but with our global partners, is if we have a fixed workforce, how do we use it more efficiently? What is it that the next generation employees 
one, going to want, but two, what do they need to be prepared for? So it really is a disruptive moment because the way we would traditionally prepare a workforce isn't going to work anymore. I think you nailed it when you talked about this being a disruptive moment. And I think one of our roles, whether it's those of us who are educators or or whether it's employers in the workforce, is providing that support and stability for people as we change the way that we do healthcare because people get anxious, right? They get anxious about their own job security. When you start talking about collaborating and task shifting, everybody gets a little bit nervous to think, well, what if, you know, what if an entirely different group of healthcare providers takes away what I usually do? Well, I say to those people, that's fantastic because there's more work that you can do. And there's certainly no shortage of work to be done. And so if there is something that a different kind of health provider can do uh, just as well so that you can be freed up to do something that's within your scope and not theirs, there has to be a lot more fluidity around people being able to work to scope. We don't understand each other very well sometimes in health systems, right? So one of the story I could tell you, which I I just found this so fascinating. One of the things we did during the pandemic was that we were asked to send some of our students to be part of something called Operation Remote Immunity, which was run by Orange Air Ambulance. And it was to provide vaccine uh, clinics in remote communities in Northern Ontario. And so we sent several teams that had doctors and nursing students and medical students, and they worked with paramedics and a whole range of providers. And when they came back and we had our debrief session with them, I asked them, you know, so what was the most interesting thing that you learned? You know what they told me that they loved the most was that in the evenings when they would get together, the paramedics would sit down with the nursing students and the medical students and they would talk about their jobs and they would talk about what they were learning and they suddenly realized that there was much more that united them than made them different and they grew in their respect for one another and they learned how to help one another the next day when they went into clinic and it wasn't sort of this is the doctor's job and this is the nurse's job and this is the paramedic's job but they actually started to see that that we can share the work uh, and figure out how we can help one another to be more effective so that's the spirit of radical collaboration And I think we need to see that happening all across the workforce. And I do think it starts with how we train uh, health professionals. So that's why I'm excited to be in the place I am. Our sense is learners want to be part of something. And it really does speak to that that earlier point that you made around interprofessional, cross-disciplinary, looking at this within the realm of health sciences and where teaching, treatment and research all come together in, in a very innovative kind of way. I would imagine that for our listeners, they may feel that, well, that just makes sense, but it really is bold. Well, you're right. I mean, I think people are surprised that this isn't the way we've always been doing things. But when you peek behind the curtains, we've become over the years very, very siloed uh, in how we've delivered both research, teaching and care and this is a great opportunity for us to, to be able to do more. It definitely impacts on the research because you can't answer those big research questions with, you know, two or three people from the same discipline working together. Let's not see long-term care as what happens within this, you know, this concrete structure. Let's actually think about it as a community 
service as part of a, a broad network of providers and care. And I think that's where people start to suddenly get more imaginative. They start to work with people that they haven't worked with before and they find solutions. Dr. Phil Putt and I spent time discussing the importance of diversity and inclusion, of providing care in a way that meets the needs of the diverse populations we serve. This includes culture, language, religion, gender diversity, and LGBTQ+, as well as individual needs and preferences. In Ontario, Canada, we have homes providing care to different cultural groups as well as First Nations homes but they need additional supports and services, including changes to policy and home design. I asked Dr. Philpott for her thoughts on how to increase the diversity across the health system within the current workforce constraints, and asked her what opportunities exist to educate the next generation of leaders. You're absolutely right that Every aspect of health systems has to take on these questions because we have unfortunately built systems that are not equitable and a workforce that is not diverse, that is not reflective of all of society. And then there are people that don't feel included. So we've got all of those things to, to tackle together, not to mention issues like accessibility. And when I talk about accessibility, I don't mean just things like whether we have ramps to get into buildings, but once you get into those buildings, how do you understand the ways of that they work? And how do you literally understand when someone is speaking to you in a different language? We have a, a lot of work to do together. From what we're doing here, we're taking it on in a number of different ways. First of all, trying to look at who is coming to our programs and who is missing from our programs. And then how do you go out and seek those underrepresented groups so that you do have doctors, for example, that are from all different ethnicities, racial backgrounds, uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, etc. And that will definitely strengthen the workforce in significant ways. And that has to happen in every type of training program that exists. The other beautiful thing that's starting to happen is looking at issues like indigeneity. And as you know, this is one of Canada's biggest challenges writ large is that we have lived in a colonial society that has been shaped in ways that have denied the rights of Indigenous peoples, but have also denied the knowledge, the, the ways of knowing and doing that Indigenous peoples can bring to us. And so we will all benefit when the rights of Indigenous peoples are fully recognized, but also that we learn from the teaching and knowledge that is there, as well as other, uh, the teachings of other cultures, because there's a lot of wisdom out there that has been closed out and we have not benefited from. So these are all issues that we are, are tackling in a comprehensive modality as we can, changing our curriculum, changing our recruitment, looking at retention and mentorship, because when people enter the workforce or uh, enter the student population and they look different or they think different, it can be lonely for those people. So we need to find ways to make sure that we have a welcoming and nurturing and inclusive place to learn and live and work. One of the uh, the questions I'd love your thoughts on is ageism. We've not been prepared for the baby boomers to age. How do we create greater literacy in supporting seniors and, and an aging aging population? 
Well, those are big and important questions, and there is no uh, question that our, our society writ large, but our healthcare systems are ageist. Those of us who are in the system need to be very much a part of changing the way that we think about uh, older people, their contributions to society, what we are doing to make sure that our, our workplaces are age-friendly. Here's a, an area where I think indigeneity is so important and what we can learn from Indigenous communities is this is possibly one of the biggest lessons because I am always impressed with the respect and deference that is paid to elders. They are the ones who give guidance to the whole community and no decision will be made uh, without the support of elders. And so, you know, imagine if all of our society was like that, Donna, right? Imagine, you know, if those of us uh, who are in the workforce knew that we couldn't make a decision, an important decision, unless the elders had weighed in. I'm not sure that I know what the the magic ingredient is for how to to tackle ageism. We've had some really great work done on it with some of the uh, some of our team, one of our faculty members who actually took the stories of older people into the classroom and helped our students to spend more time learning about the lives and experiences of older people. And and maybe that's the biggest key of all is that uh, we need to spend more time together, just like the silos sep- that separate us in our different types of health professions. There are silos that separate us along age barriers. We don't intermingle as much as we could. So how do we create facilities? And I know that people in long-term care are thinking about that all the time. How do you invite toddlers and high school students and uh, people of all walks of life into facilities where older people uh, live and enjoy life uh, and help people to understand one another more and and realize what we can learn from one another? So uh, those are all things that we are certainly trying to tackle here. But I do think, as you said, the other thing that's been really helpful through the pandemic is that the doors of long-term care or the windows have been opened. It wasn't that they maybe weren't open before, but nobody was nobody was looking in. Nobody was seeing older people in the way that they now have and realizing that, oh my gosh, not only um, you know is there so much to learn, but there is so much complexity and uh, there's so the, it, it should not be a separate part of society or of health systems. we We really need one another. What gives me great hope is programs like yours, bold. <laughs> calls for revolution like your strategy with such deep engagement from your students in your community. I do wonder, though, where there are other opportunities as we think about the circle of care. One one other theme that really emerged in long-term care was the role of the family caregiver. Mm. We call them the essential caregiver, but we, we're still not seeing that move into other parts of the, the health system necessarily. So I was primary caregiver for my mother and and for my father. I went to every primary care provider uh, meeting, but I couldn't stay in hospital with them. Mm -hmm. In long-term care, we were isolated. There is now greater recognition of of the role. But there are so many individuals and so many seniors and communities across Ontario and Canada who don't have family caregivers. And yet there are others who are wanting to continue to have a 
useful and meaningful life and would be happy to provide care, but we haven't necessarily got the networks established for people to be able to, to be either volunteers or assistants for, for families. But I think you're right. There's a lot of creativity that needs to be gained so that caregivers uh, get the support that they need, that they are f- included as part of the care team. I spent the first decade of my medical career living and working in Niger, West Africa. And been interesting in the last year or two, I've thought about different things in the way that we practiced care in our very rural, remote hospital in on the edge of the Sahara Desert in West Africa. And I've thought, we actually had a bunch of things right that I thought were perhaps backward at the time. And now I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that was such a great way that we did things there. And you could not have run a hospital without family caregivers because every patient had their family caregiver with them. Uh, they usually slept right beside them. They helped to provide the meals. It was probably for cost efficiency reasons, uh, if nothing else, but it was also cultural. And so we accepted this sort of sterile, separated environment as, as a normal way of doing care. And it got worse during the pandemic rather than better. And now we need to find a way to say, hey, how can we make caregiver-friendly environments uh, so that we recognize that that family member is not a nuisance. They are actually part of the care team and need to be uh, brought into the discussions and supported to be able to to make their loved one succeed and and, get to their their uh, healthiest uh, status that they can be in. To your point, it really is about collaboration. So your plan is about uh, radical collaboration. It really is a, a platform for disruption. How do we scale it? I've been excited about the energy that, you know, they talk about something having legs or having wings. And I feel like this plan has taken on a little bit of a life of its own. We planned it within the Faculty of Health Sciences at Queen's, but I now have my colleagues and other faculties in arts and science and engineering and law and business saying, we want to do radical collaboration. <laughs> so it's sort of like once people kind of get it, uh, it takes off, takes a life of its own. And as we're starting to think about, you know, how do we take ter- down walls in the health systems and why do nurses get trained in this little separate silo? Why don't they, why don't we train them uh, much more closely alongside doctors and, and OTs and PTs? so that they can understand each other's roles. And people are sort of saying, oh, why do we teach anatomy separately to all these different disciplines? Isn't anatomy the same? Some of it is just the common sense of it all. And I, we hope that that will catch on and, and go to scale. We have a bit more proof of concept work to do because some of the things that we're going to try to do haven't been done before. Uh, and so you uh, you want to learn some lessons as you go along because I'm sure we'll make a few mistakes. But I think the, the fact that people understand it easily and see the value will speak for itself and encourage others to innovate as well. Well, it's a, it's a really clear vision, and, and actually, as as somebody who's who's working closely with government and our teams and our members right now to help public policymakers understand that you can't do policy in a vacuum. Imagine if you could work with your school of public policy to help them understand that you have to have something that's implementable. 
And you also have to work with those who who are going to operationalize it. So what does it look like in reality? You may have a good concept and there are lots of ideas around the world. You know, we often hear about different countries with different policies and approaches to healthcare. But yet, how do you translate that to the reality of the Canadian healthcare system, to our geography, to our culture, to our diversity? I think there's a lot of opportunity there to really make things come to life and celebrate incrementalism because, but if you have that bigger vision and just take one mile at a time, one's foot forward, one partnership at a time, imagine what we could all do together. I really want to thank you, uh, Dr. Philpott, for your leadership, your bold vision, for your excitement. I can feel it. Envy your students and your learners. What you're doing is is truly remarkable and, and gives me great hope for the future. Oh, well, thank you. Well, it's been a lovely uh, time to be able to have a conversation about this. And I wish you the best in all of the work that you've taken on. And let's move forward with these bold ideas. And as you say, uh, step by step, we, we can make the system better. Dr. Philpott and I covered a lot of ground in our 30-minute discussion. There is no question that radical collaboration is needed in a world where we have health system workforce shortages and a rapidly aging population. In other countries, there is a lot more collaboration and flexibility in professional roles within their healthcare systems. This new approach to healthcare education that Dr. Philpott and her colleagues at Queen's University are advancing will produce a new generation of providers that will be more accustomed to thinking about what everyone brings to the team. And it will be looking together at how to structure their services in the best way possible for the patient or resident. This gives me enormous hope for the future. This week's Coming of Age episode is sponsored by OLTCA's sector champion, Point Click Care. PointClick Care is a leading healthcare technology platform, enabling meaningful collaboration and access to real-time insights at any stage of a patient's healthcare journey. PointClick Care's single platform spans the care continuum, fostering proactive, holistic decision-making, and improved outcomes for all. Over 25,000 long-term post-acute care providers in over 1,600 hospitals use PointClick Care today. For more information on PointClick Care software solutions, visit pointclickcare.com. Thank you for listening to Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate the show five stars, and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Until next time, I'm your host, Donna Duncan.